0: Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. So I suppose I promised on yesterday's show I would talk a little bit about the All-Star game and then I didn't. So uh, we'll do that today. Among other things, we have a couple things on the docket for today's show, but we might as well do the thing that, you know, happened a couple days ago and we haven't talked about it yet. And that's All-Star Weekend Festivities. We open with that here on Fantasy NBA Today, this being, of course, a Sports Ethos presentation. I'm your host, Dan Bespris. Follow me on Twitter, at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S, sportsethos.com, at B K on Twitter. I I mentioned on yesterday's podcast that I had some uh, broadcasting gigs, I think that's probably the proper terminology for it, that actually took me away from home for some ...of the All-Star Stuffs, but I did make it time and home to catch the last 80% or so of the three-point contest and the dunk contest. And as we talked about on our Friday episode of this show, and by the way, uh, didn't do so great on our All-Star predictions, although we got one, and, and we'll cover that in a minute. The skills challenge, I offered no play... And the Cavs ended up winning that one, because really it was going to come down to who could make a half-court shot the quickest, but we needed to kind of see what it was, really. So we could read what the skills challenge was going to be, but we still, like it said, there was going to be a passing challenge and a shooting challenge. Like, okay, that's fine, but what are they, really? And we didn't know. It seemed like on paper the rookies had the most well-rounded of teams, but that didn't really matter. So now we know a little bit better, at least. Three-point contest, that one's on me, man. That one's entirely on me. I did not, I missed it. Somewhere along the way, I missed that Cat was like hell-bent on winning this thing and proving to the world that, you know, he's the best big man shooter of all time. And there was a whole storyline behind it that I don't know how I missed that on Friday. More of it, I think, did come out on Saturday, but that is not an excuse. He should not have been taken off of our list had I known that this was like the thing for him, that this was the reason he came to All-Star Weekend was to go win the three-point contest and put that trophy on his shelf, and he got to wear his mom's necklace, which they made an exception for, because obviously we know this, the horrible story that the towns, where they, yeah, I mean, the whole family went through during COVID how many members of their family they lost to it, so this was a huge deal for him, and at ten to one odds, massive value winner uh my fear in this one was that Desmond Bain, because he's having such a great three point shooting season, might have put perhaps a little bit too much pressure on himself, and that definitely came to fruition. Trey Young got hot, that was the big thing there the the long distance three pointers they help him. He's better from that distance than others, and uh, and then Luke Kennard showed himself to be a very good three-point shooter. We talked about him as uh, like one of the last guys I took off our list before we split a half unit that all went down the tubes anyway. Um, I thought Patty Mills would do a bit better. That was a tad disappointing. You know, we had to you got to catch him at that right moment, I guess. Uh, but the Bane one was was not a good call. He got overwhelmed a bit in his first three-point contest. Young guy just it's sort of it wasn't the right time and it sounds like he wants to come back and maybe that'll be the time to get in on on Bane although we'll have to look and see the competition and then the dunk contest you know I take full responsibility for missing on the cat elements but the dunk contest was crap like I kind of liked Obi Toppin's bank dunk once he finally pulled it off it was kind of fun and new but there's just nothing new anyone's doing anymore and these guys just missed Dunk after dunk after dunk. If someone just went out and made four dunks in a row, they would have won it. So it didn't matter what our strategy was. Whoever, like, screwed up the least won the dunk contest. Congrats to Obi Toppin, but that was a crap. That was a crap dunk contest. Garbage. I don't don't take responsibility for missing on that one. I think we went Cole Anthony, if I remember correctly, and, like, he was bad... And Montescano Anderson was not very entertaining. And, you know, the props weren't very entertaining. These guys just weren't. They weren't exciting dunkers. This just wasn't good. Next time. The uh the bet we did get right was Team Durant catching five and a half points. They covered. And of course you need them to cover by the end of the third quarter because of the Elam ending. Uh and they did. Because you figured, you know, Team LeBron. Pulled away last year. That game was sort of blowouty going into the fourth quarter. It made it a little bit easier on them. I had a, a strong suspicion that Team Durant had the right group of guys to kind of care a little bit more. And it didn't turn out to be Ja as the, the main cog there, but as a collective unit, the bench in particular came on and cared. And that's all you needed. You needed to find the guys that cared. So it was close going down the stretch, and then we didn't have to worry about what happened in the last couple of possessions because we were catching a bunch of points. Steph Curry, well-deserved MVP. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, you kind of have to know who's going to get hot, what really special thing could happen, and Steph hitting 16 three-pointers, that's a pretty damn special thing that happened, including the one... We talked about on yesterday's pie with Alex that he shot from near center court and then ran away from before it went into the bucket. That, <laughs> so amazing. So that's really the handicap on All-Star Game MVP. You find who might care, or you find someone who can do something we've never seen before. And I feel like the only guy in the mix that qualified for that second option is Steph. None of these other guys is going to do something in an All-Star game we haven't seen before, other than, you know, score 50, which Steph did, hit a ridiculous record-breaking number of three-pointers, many from 35 to 40 feet away, which Steph did. But it's arguably, I mean, year to year, it's a much safer play to go with the storyline play for All-Star game MVP. Now, where I do regret my call a little bit is that I didn't fully believe that Team Durant could actually win the ball game, which, if we wanted our jaw MVP play to hit, they would have actually needed to win the game outright. They're going to give the MVP to someone on the winning team. That's just sort of how it works. Even if I think even if someone also like if someone on the losing team scored fifty, but the winning team had a couple guys that scored thirty five, I think one of those guys would probably get it. Even though the most value player was was clearly the guy on the on the losing team, it just doesn't usually go that way. So, that might have been a little bit of a ticky-tack oversight. I felt like he was going to be the guy to keep Team Durant in it. That was a misfire, but Team Durant stayed in it, and uh, so that straight wager paid off, thankfully, because the uh, the unit we split on two players in the three-point contest lost. The unit we spent on the, uh, the dunk contest lost, so we made one back. And then, you know, I do put a unit on Joff MVP. I couldn't actually even find that prop. I don't think my bookie had that one. I couldn't find it on my bookie. Maybe it popped up later in the weekend, but I was, again, not home in the middle of the day on Sunday. I didn't get to watch the actual All-Star game. So that's what happened over All-Star weekend. Today is a lovely day to tell all of you guys about our good friends at Express VPN. Com. You've heard me talk about how important it is to have a VPN to protect your online privacy, but choosing a VPN you trust is just as important. You can't just pick one out of the sky. I do my research on my sponsors. We don't have people on this show that we don't trust. You know that, or we'd have had a whole bunch of little tiny ones over the years. Because believe me, a lot of folks have come and they were like, hey, we want to do you know a week or two on your pod. And I'm like, no, stop it. I only recommend folks that I trust and believe in, and I can say with confidence, the fullest, that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market. First, they don't log your online activity. Other VPNs can and do. The free ones make their money the same way that your ISPs do. Remember we talked to you about this over the last couple of weeks? ExpressVPN doesn't do that. They developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes their VPN servers incapable of storing any data at all. They couldn't do it even if they wanted to. Second, they're the fastest. They use a, uh, a service called Lightway. It's a new VPN protocol they built to make user speeds faster than ever. I've tried many VPNs. Many of them slow the connection. ExpressVPN does not. Blazing fast speeds. You can do HD video with no buffering, same as you were before. And the last thing that really sets them apart is how easy it is to use. You don't need any technical skills, because I'm sure when you guys hear me talk about ExpressVPN, you think I'm adjusting my bifocals and getting deep into the nerd weeds here. You just install it, turn on the app, and tap one button. Or, if you're on a a, uh, smart device, you don't even have to install it. You just turn on the app and hit one button. Grandpa can do it. Business Insider, The Verge, many other tech journals, they all agree with me and rate ExpressVPN number one in the world. So protect yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. Use our special link, expressvpn.com hoopball and get three months extra on your 12-month package. So 15 months for the price of 12. The link, once again, expressvpn.com hoopball. Yes, I know it's our old name, but that's the one that works. Expressvpn.com hoopball. Go there now, learn more, get yourself a-V-P-N. So what's going on this week? Well, not a ton. Uh, games don't come back still yet for a couple of days. <laughs> it's Tuesday. Games are back on, what, Thursday? Am I getting that right? Yeah, handful of games on Thursday and then, and then rolling into a, a much larger Friday card. Uh, so I thought it might be kind of fun, and many of you might have even seen this happening, but yesterday, after... Uh after the, the finishing up the podcast with Alex, I I posted on Twitter a question for everybody, all of you guys out on social media, which was basically, okay, you heard my lesson, which is, if in case you missed yesterday's show, my lesson to this point that I've actually already talked about on social media as well, and then discussed with Alex on yesterday's podcast. I need to do a better job of analyzing what the storylines are around superstars and how their teams are built on a given year. I think that's actually been a colossal story this fantasy season, and I might have even undersold it a tiny bit on yesterday's podcast. Because if you look at... Like, look at draft results at this point. Go back and look at the the pre-ranks on Yahoo this year. Or probably about as bad on the the... First round, I mm, I don't know. Yahoo's mixed all their crap up. Like Demar DeRozan is now 12 preseason rank, but that's crap. He was not being drafted at 12, so you can't you can't use that number anymore. You got to go to draft analysis or draft results or whatever the the tab is on Yahoo these days. I think it's draft analysis. But yeah, I mean obviously Demar wasn't going that high. If you look at the the first like 15 picks. You can find a lot of reasons to be afraid of guys that I, we, whoever, kind of glossed over a tad. Nikola Jokic actually had a number of reasons to be concerned. Alex mentioned them yesterday. No Jamal Murray, although there was always this suspicion that Jamal might be back by, like, March. So maybe for a playoff run, which does make that a little bit different than the Kawhi Leonard thing. But as you work your day down the board, um, I guess the top five or six didn't really have it. But Dame... We knew there was gonna be some stuff going on in Portland. The uh the abdominal thing that got downplayed a bit at the Olympics obviously did turn out to be a big factor as well. But this sort of was like the the forced blow up year for Portland. Um Jason Tatum having a, a slightly off season, but that's not really related to any of this stuff. Uh Anthony Davis just like dude needs a ton of time to get healthy again it just doesn't seem like it's gonna happen Paul George that to me is the really one and and Bradley Beal frankly is the other one that sticks out Paul George sticks out because we know Clippers are championship or bust and so without Kawhi Leonard that's bust sure PG might have played hard had he stayed healthy but they were just never going to force him through stuff if there wasn't a guarantee that Kawhi was coming back Bradley Beal yeah they traded away Russell Westbrook which you know as we've seen is is something that worked out kind of terribly on the Lakers side and hasn't really changed much on the Wizards side there was so there was no massive impetus for Beal to play ridiculously hard this year because they weren't going anywhere like maybe they squeeze into the playoffs is that enough for him to be fired up all season long we need to be analyzing these these plays near the top that have a reason to not pan out. And there aren't that many of them. You know, two, three. But that's still a significant enough number to where these are guys we need to be wiping off our board. And I don't know that we can look far enough ahead for next year to really figure out who that might be. 2022-23 season. It's not that obvious yet. We don't know what team all of these guys are going to be on. But we'll really... I promise you this. We will deep dive that type of stuff as the season gets close. Like, what if there's turmoil in Utah? You know, what if we hear that Donovan Mitchell asks out? Then it might be finally the time to not draft Rudy Gobert or Mitchell himself. And I don't know that this is going to happen. I'm just sort of lobbing some teams out there that we've heard are kind of, uh, from a chemistry standpoint, imperfect I don't know that anybody really fits that mold in the Eastern Conference. That's more of a Western Conference problem these days. Jazz are in that boat. What if something goes on with the Nuggets or the Lakers? The Lakers could very well end up as that team next year. What if LeBron doesn't come back? We already start, you know, he's starting to talk about playing with Bronny during his last year. He doesn't care where that might maybe back in Cleveland. Well, his family all lives in Los Angeles these days, so I you know, believe it when I see it, I guess. It's going to surface between now and the end of the playoffs. Someone's probably going to have a debilitating injury. Someone's probably going to have a you know a year off type of thing. Look at the players that already have. I guess there haven't been a ton of those guys at the very top of the board. Ricky Rubio is a you know farther down the table. The rest of these guys are supposed to be able to get back. This also may translate into value for certain guys, depending on, you know, dudes that missed most of this season or all of this season, like a Jonathan Isaac. Maybe they finally retake the court at some point. In any event, all of this, a roundabout way of saying that I thought it might be fun to figure out what you guys were thinking about. As Alex and I had that discussion on our lessons to this point, what were you guys thinking about your own lessons? So here are a couple of the I think maybe not you know not necessarily like you guys had a lot of really good replies on this twenty some odd ish I think replies came back on that tweet um these are the ones I thought that we could discuss a bit I say we which it's me talking to myself I guess uh as opposed to some of the shorter ones that are actually right but difficult to turn into a discussion if that makes any sense so uh let's just let's just start with one and we'll work our way through and you know I'll, i'll pick up an easy one and uh it's from one of our buddies actually jared johnson i don't know if you guys remember he was on the show a very long time ago uh and he writes over at NBC Sports Edge, formerly Roto World. And his, one of his, he actually dropped two into the thread, was never to underestimate your opponent. Which I thought was a really interesting thing to throw in there. Because that's very, first of all, that's very head-to-head. Uh, as a discussion point, that's not something that you really can do in Roto. You, 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 you know, you're estimating everybody the same at all times. But in head-to-head, this happens all the time. Uh, where you might look ahead in your schedule and see that you've got like the 12th place team coming up around the corner and take your foot off the gas a little bit. But Jared's very right on this one. You should never take your foot off the gas and especially when you have the worst teams in your league coming up, that's when you should go for the jugular. Go try to beat them 8-1, to 7-2, to whatever it takes. That's when you can build up your cushion. This is, it's exactly what an entire baseball or basketball season is. Eventually, you're going to play the bad teams, and that's where you got to run up the total a little bit. I guess this is more college-y, like run up your total against some bad teams so that your numbers look better when voters are trying to figure out if you're in the top four or whatever it is, or, you know, basketball, same kind of thing, college basketball. If you can get inside the top 68 teams, uh that's the same story for fantasy. So I thought that was actually a really good point by Jared, which is take every week as its own individual battle, try to scratch and claw your way to five, four wins against the really good teams in your league, and then run up the total against the bad teams. And I'll actually mention another reason that this is actually a very important point. This may be a tiny bit more for me then for you guys, but maybe it's happened to someone else out there as well. Which is, first of all, it's weird for me to say this, and I and I say it with uh, no humility at all, but a, a maximum level of confusion. I've become something of a niche celebrity here in the fantasy circles, and it's still silly. But when I'm in a league with somebody, I know they're going to take me very seriously. This is head-to-head or roto, whatever it might be. So. You know, I'm, I'm fairly confident that I'm in a head-to-head league right now where, you know, someone invited me into it. I dropped into it. I don't really know anybody in the league. Most of the leagues I actually either started or joined a long time ago, and now I know most of the people. This one I don't really know many folks, but I'm fairly certain they all know each other. So I'm like the weird outsider, but everybody wants to beat the weird outsider. And there's no strict collusion going on. So everything is above board, but what I'm fairly certain is happening is that the really bad teams are kind of mailing it in most of the time, but when I come up on their battle, I don't know if they're being told that I'm coming up, like as a warning, hey, Dan's coming up, like get your game face on, or if they're just like waiting for me to try to get their last win of the year. But all of a sudden, these teams that hadn't set their lineup in three weeks They make all four roster moves on Monday, get rid of all their injured guys, and suddenly they have like a full functioning team again, just for me. So I don't know if this happens to anybody else. If it does, it's yet another reason, like Jared said, don't underestimate your competition. And extrapolating from that, pick on the crappy ones, smash them, obliterate their souls as you go through their teams, beat them into a pulp, because you never know when something terrible might happen to your team. You'd have three, four of your best guys going down injured for two weeks in a row, and you lose seven to two to a couple of really good teams. So all of a sudden now, you know, you're down seven to seven two. You're four and 14 over two weeks. You need to make up those 10 games under 500. And really, the way to do that is to just smash bad teams into a pulp. So look at your opponent before every head-to-head week. Find out if they've got a bunch of injured players that they're trying to stash or, or hang in there with. Uh, maybe that's a good team that's stashing some injured guys and trying to sneak their way through. Stream against them. Smack them around. If it's a bad team that just doesn't have a good team, stream against them. Beat them up. Don't blow a week. Don't waste a week when you can build your lead up in that week. And as a little bit of a corollary to this, Big Baller uh, tweeted at us that you try not to overreact at the beginning of weeks and use up your acquisitions too early. And I would offer that that actually isn't even the entire story. So Big Baller, many thank you for the jumping point here. Uh, But I think the actual story here, and, and maybe it's because it couldn't quite fit an entire tweet, I get it. That's not a great way to have a full conversation in in 140 character chunks. I think it depends heavily on what time of the season it is. I've been known to use up all of my moves by Tuesday or Wednesday. The first, I don't know, five, six weeks of the season, when there's a lot of shuffling players that we thought were great, turn out to be terrible, players that were terrible turn out to be great, people that bail on someone who's very much a mean reversion away from being a good fantasy player... At the beginning of the year, I don't I don't really advocate maximum streaming right out of the shoot. You end up you end up dumping the wrong players at that point. Other people do it. it. Happens to someone else in your league, probably someone else in your league every single year. Go back and look at the transition first couple weeks of the season. Important players definitely got dropped in your league because someone was just like, oh, bad start. Bye. So the beginning of the season, I would advocate using your moves whenever the hell you want. You use them when someone pops up that might have rest of season, as in full year's worth of value. As you hit like week seven, six, five, six, seven, whatever it is, what, what cutting off point doesn't really matter to me. It's got to just be at least a few weeks into the year. That's when you can start leaning into the stream a little bit more. And that's when you do also want to save a couple moves towards the end of the week. The long stream is what you should be using pretty much throughout the season. Get five, six days out of somebody. Four games over six days, five games out of seven days, three games out of four days, whatever it might be. So you can use, I don't know, three of your roster moves to stream Monday, Wednesday, Friday, whatever it is, but make sure you've got one for the weekend because you might you you got a pretty good guess at what categories are going to be close between you and your opponent on any given week if you're really sizing them up. But you don't really know because of player injuries, who has three games, two games, four games, whatever, on each side. There's going to be weird categories that you didn't expect to be closer or farther apart than you had predicted, and those are the ones you can make a move on over the weekend. And I know you guys know what I'm talking about with this, because this is an inarguable fantasy point. It's happened to all of us. I'm guessing more times than you can count on hands and or fingers and toes. The hell, happened to me, I think, not last week, uh before the, the all star break. But the week before that, uh I saved a couple moves for, for Saturday in a in a league where they actually gave us five moves, I believe. And I realized, hey, you know, I basically had been punting blocks in that league, but for whatever reason my team, a bunch of guards came up with like one block a piece, and I had 17 or 18 blocks and my opponent had 20 and was and had like one guy playing on the last day. And I thought, you know what, screw it. I'm going to use my last two moves here to go for blocks. And sure enough, got myself an extra category out of it. Use your moves wisely. I don't know that we need to say it all the time, but maybe we do need to say it all the time. Steve Cable. A really good and positive lesson here from Steve. A bad or unlucky draft isn't the end. Steve is so right. Sometimes you can, your eyes can just go inside your head on draft night and you do something stupid or a bunch of things in a row and you're done and you're just looking at it, this carnage that that you left behind on your team on fantasy draft night and thinking, that's it, I'm done, I'm cooked. It's never the end. There are pickups. In many leagues, Desmond Bain, Gary Trent weren't drafted. You could add two top 50 fantasy players on the wire in your league. In my leagues, they were all drafted, but I think I run a slightly, slightly, not than all of you, but my I think my 12 and, and my 12-teamers play a bit more like 14, so guys like that do end up getting drafted. And many of you are in 16, 18, 20-teamers, I get it. But like from a 12-team competition level, I probably have to go just a little bit deeper, and I, I try to reflect that in the way I talk about things on the podcast, but... It's quite conceivable that you were in a league where those guys didn't get drafted. It's quite conceivable you are in a league where Alex Caruso didn't get drafted. He very rarely got drafted. And he was putting up big numbers before his injury. Yeah, it sucks that he got hurt, but you know what I'm saying. If you go to the list of players and sort of look at where they might have been acquired, the... There's always a handful. Uh, there's a usually a, like a couple, maybe two guys, like a like a Bane or a Gary Trent, that were sort of maybe not drafted that end up inside the top fifty. It's usually only like two, but there's usually a bunch of guys that end up between fifty and ninety that weren't drafted. I mean, I think we could find a, a whole host of them this year if you go to nine cat per game stuff. You can find a bunch. Or at least guys that were drafted pretty late. Tyrese Maxey, he was a guy that got scooped up late because of the Ben Simmons stuff. Maybe he didn't get drafted, maybe he did. Caruso, Josh Hart, Herb Jones, Jared Vanderbilt, Larry Markkinen, he was going pretty damn late. If Even if he didn't, if he might not have gotten drafted Will Barton was going at the very, very end of drafts. He's inside the top 90. Cole Anthony. Franz Wagner. Jalen Brunson. Pat Beverly. Uh, A lot of those guys weren't drafted. These guys are all inside the top 100. So draft day isn't the end. Oh, it's really, really nice to come away with a good draft. Because then on top of that, you can go find these other dudes. At that point, you're rolling. And trades if you have a bad draft that's actually generally an opportunity to start looking at punt strategy where can you make the adjustment and lean into something change the team up flip the board a little bit and of course i gotta go to this one because it's my favorite lesson and one that i don't need to learn anymore but it is one i'm going to talk about both carl and Dog. Tweeted roughly the same thing with some very slight adjustments to it. And that is, you guessed it. Well, I'll I'll read their tweets and then you guys know where I'm going to go with it. Dog says, don't draft anyone that's high on preseason lists, but doesn't have a definitive return date. Thanks for the lesson, Jonathan Isaac. And Carl says, don't draft high injury risk players in the first two to three rounds. Also, that all leagues should have one to two IL-plus spots, which I defi- I generally agree with on the head-to-head side. You need as many IL spots as your fantasy leagues are okay with in head-to-head. In Roto, I don't think you need them because you can just make the bench longer. Same general idea. Just make more bench slots. That way, if you can go bench slots, it's easier than IL because then you're not reliant on the system to tell you when someone can be tagged. So I get IL-plus, you can do it that way because then when they're you know, they're out or their game time decisions or whatever, you might get a little bit of leeway as opposed to the long-term prognosis or three games missed, which is the current rule splitting hairs, I'm sure, but it does once again, bring into focus, don't draft injured players or high risk guys, which I take issue with a little bit, Carl, sorry, picking on you for just a second here. It's a good, it's a good lesson by the way. So I, I, I feel like I earned the right to pick on the phrasing a little bit. It's sometimes hard to know who a high-injury-risk player is. There are sort of gray areas. When you look at, say, the first 25, the top 25, which takes you through, like, Roughly, Lamella Ball, Devin Booker, uh, Westbrook range this year. Yikes, Westbrook in the top 25. Some of the guys that are out, you wouldn't necessarily say are injury risk type of guys. Like, Bradley Beal has been ridiculously durable the last, what is it, three or four years after dealing with the stress reaction stuff in his foot. Now it just happens to be a hand thing. And I think the story there is less about the injury risk and more about how he's just on a bad team. Uh, Kevin Durant, he's an injury risk. Yeah, okay, fair. Dame has never been an injury risk. He's always just played through everything. But again, it was sort of blow-up time in Portland. Anthony Davis is an injury risk. Joel Embiid is an injury risk, but he's actually been a bit more healthy this year. So I take issue to some degree with the idea of, look, how can you truly isolate who an injury risk is? Chris Paul was considered an injury risk three years ago. And he basically played every single ball game until somebody smashed his thumb out of its socket this year, which is not the type of injury that anybody was thinking about when it pertains to what would cause him to miss time. Everybody said, oh, he's going to have sore hamstrings. He's going to have old man stuff. He's going to take days off. And he played in every damn ball game for almost three consecutive seasons in full. And he's a third rounder and he's been a massive value. So it kinda goes both ways on that one. I think the first like there are really only a couple of names. K D was we knew he was an injury risk. Joel Embiid was a very large injury risk in the early rounds. Second round, oddly enough, didn't actually have many guys that you'd tag with injury risk. Maybe maybe Freddie Van Vliet, but more of that is just that Toronto plays their guys forty seven out of forty eight minutes every ball game. As you get into the third, fourth round, you start to see a few more of those guys pop up, whoever, whatever you want to call them. Michael Porter Jr. because of the history of back stuff. And, you know, it seemed like he was over that, but obviously not the case. Uh, Miles Turner has been hurt every year for about the last two or three in a row. I guess you could call him an injury risk. Lonzo Ball has never really made it through a season in one piece. Christophe Porzingis was a very obvious injury play, but he was also getting drafted way behind where he would be if he was a healthy player. Like, this was all, that was already baked into his number. So, for me, I really do like to pare it down a little bit more and forget the you know high-injury-risk guys. Where's the cutoff there? Who is and who isn't a true high-injury-risk guy? I mean, you could make an argument that Anthony Davis and Joel Embiid were the only guys in the top 25 that you'd say, okay, yeah, those guys are always going to miss a couple of games. Always. Embiid has never made it through a season without missing, what was the smallest number, like 18, 19 games, something like that? Anthony Davis did it like once, maybe twice in a decade. Okay, fine. I could argue those two guys, maybe you wipe them off your board. Paul George is hurt this year. He's been more dinged up certainly lately with the Clippers, but remember he came back from his massive early career injury and actually was very durable after that. Played through a bunch of stuff in OKC. I think he missed three games Uh, that year while he was dealing with, like, two busted shoulders and a busted knee or something. So I believe it's very hard to know. I think you can make your life simpler by just saying, okay, who are the guys that have never made it to within 15 games of a full season of basketball? And who are the guys who are out right now? Don't draft injured players. There were a bunch of them this year. Again, and I think only one is turning out as a successful injured player grab. Pascal Siakam is the example of the win this year of players that started the season hurt. There's a handful of others that weren't and that don't. Zion hasn't played. Chris Boucher actually started the year hurt, remember? Took him all sorts of time to get back into the good graces of the Raptors. He had a uh, a few good weeks in there, and then he's kind of been like cruising at just inside top 100 value for a while, which is useful, but I don't think you call that a victory. Dylan Brooks, hurt again. That always happens to guys starting the year hurt. Kyrie Irving didn't start the year hurt, but this vaccine stuff. Ben Simmons, you could put him in that category. Mental, mental illness is... I'm putting that with hurt at this point. It's something that's keeping him out of ball games. That's not fair. I mean, my categories, I, I don't want to... My, my goal there was not to demonize it in any way, but we know that he is dealing with stuff, whether it pertains to the Sixers, or just his own mental well-being, whatever it was. He wasn't playing to start the year. Don't take a chance on that. Previous season, James Harden. Kind of the same scenario, although he just was sort of eating his way out of Houston, same but different, it doesn't work. It's a bad strategy. You want to get off to good starts. Spending higher picks on guys who might be back quickly is almost always a bad decision. And frankly, spending picks pretty much inside your first 90, I would argue you got to get into at least the eighth round. So I believe that'd be pick 75 is the first pick of the eighth round. No, pick 85. Excuse me. It's the first pick of the eighth round. Nope. 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 You guys are out there yelling at me like, Dan, get it together. Seventh round ends on 84. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pick 85 is the first pick of the eighth round. All right, we're there. I got there. I got there. And then I second guessed myself. That's, I think when you can first consider someone who is actually hurt to start the year. You must spend your first seven picks. You know what? Codify it. Let's just put this in stone. I'm etching it into a stone, and I'm putting it in the yard. I, thou shalt not draft an injured player to start a season before pick 85. And in head-to-head, don't do it at all. This is Roto, where you can just dump them on your bench for a while and hope they come back and perform it like a top 65 clip once they're healthy. This is why I think you could maybe take someone like a Kemba Walker this year I pick a hundred didn't work out but if it did he could have been like number 60 65 if he played starters minutes but his body can't handle it anymore now we know that that's where you can take a shot like that because those guys are never going to play a full season they're almost always getting a back injured with something else the case of the Pascal Siakam is extraordinarily unusual for him to come back and then be this successful and this healthy after returning he still missed a bunch of games you know he's still down like 15 games against someone who's playing every single day but he could be drafted near 55 or 60 and he's a top 40 player per game that's actually staying healthy so he should get to his ADP by the time this season's done barring something happening between now and the end of the year which certainly could still happen Folks, I'm going to remind you guys again. I know this is sort of a weird week for it, but promo be promo. I got to do it. Hit me up on Twitter, at Dan Vesperus If you're interested in getting a prize, hanging out with our buddies over at thrivefantasy.com. Prop up. No longer must you toil in the mud trying to figure out who the $3,500 garbage heap end-of-the-bench guy is that's going to pop off for 21 drafting points, or whatever traditional DFS would tell you you have to do. No. Nay. Not anymore. With Thrive Fantasy, all you got to know is what the big names are doing on a given night. You make your calls. Go for the high point total calls by fading the heavily played direction on overs and unders on your favorite players in the NBA. You think a big-name player is going under on a given night? Great opportunity to rack up some extra points. Or play it safe. Take a lot of the consensus plays. See if you can pile them together. If it's a night where they all hit, maybe that's the way you rack up your points. Pick 10 out of 20. Collect the most points. You win money. That's how Thrive Fantasy works. Hit me up on Twitter, at Dan DanBessers, if you'd like to get involved with them. I've got prizes. Promo code there is Ethos. 100% deposit match and... Two $20 contest entry vouchers. That's a hell of a way to start. $10 deposit gets you an extra 10 and then an extra 40. $10 gets you $60 a play at thrivefantasy.com and the Thrive Fantasy app available on Apple and Android devices. Yes. Isn't it great when folks have an app? We should have an app. We don't, but Thrive does. Promo code again ETHOS, E T H O S, at thrivefantasy.com. Tomorrow. I will tell you more of our good friends at manscaped.com because they have some cool stuff coming in March. And I want you guys getting a few things here before February wraps up. But we are wrapping up here on the pod. I am Dan Baspris. This is your Tuesday edition of Fantasy NBA Today. Tomorrow, we'll just keep plodding along through strategic elements of the All-Star break. Games aren't back till Thursday, so we got some time to kill. Have a great Tuesday, everybody. So long.